this is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, and welcome to the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast, the internet cycling community's number one resource for motivation, education, entertainment, news, and events. Jennifer Sage and I produce and distribute these free podcasts as a service to the indoor cycling instructors around the world. We hope that you can take some of what we are offering and use it to add some additional wow to your next class. Now, for instructors looking for a fresh perspective, or maybe you want to bring back the applause you used to get at the end of your class, you can claim your $1 trial to Indoor Cycle Instructor Pro by visiting IndoorCycleInstructor.com forward slash pro. Joining me as our master instructor, Jennifer Sage. How are you, Jennifer? I'm great, thanks. Who are we talking to today? Today we're going to talk with Doug Rushow. He is from Rochester, New York, and he is a certified personal trainer. He's got a CSCS, and he's got a, a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and biomechanics. So uh, Doug knows a thing or two. All right, so why would we have a personal trainer on the Indoor Cycle Instructor podcast? Well, he's he's got specialties in sports-specific, low back injury prevention, post-rehab, and he's also been teaching indoor cycling for 13 years. So he's definitely, uh, you know, one of us. Not only that, he's been mountain biking uh, for a long time. He raced 13 years as expert and even raced road racing for seven years and as a Cat 4. So he is a self-proclaimed certified cycling nut. So welcome, Doug. Thank you. That's probably the Good best day. introduction we've ever had, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of fun to say. Yeah, it. welcome, Doug. It's fun to have you on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Doug and I have been going back and forth for a while uh, over email and on Pedalon. John, we're we're very attuned to safety and effectiveness in indoor cycling classes, and Doug has a different perspective. It's it's really the same perspective, but from a different point of view. So we're going to analyze some of these indoor cycling techniques that we've been discussing uh, either on um, our podcast or on post or on our last teleseminar. But he's going to look at it from a personal trainer's perspective. Doug, you started off by telling me there is no wrong in fitness, just risk and reward. Why don't you describe that a little bit more? Uh, sure. Um, well, since I've been all these years of personal training, you know, just like with indoor cycling, there's lots of certifications, there's lots of experts out there, and everyone sort of has the right way to do something or do a certain exercise or the effectiveness of different exercises. And what I've come to find over the years is that, you know, there really is no right or wrong. There's kind of a kind of a gray area. And with each specific exercise or group of exercises or whatever that you may do, there's a certain risk involved with them and there's certain rewards. And as a trainer, you have to kind of decide where that falls in that continuum, and especially with who you're applying it to. So that's kind of where I go with that. And obviously, I'll put a disclaimer out there right now for doing something incredibly dangerous. Obviously, we can definitely label that as being wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> Some things just have no reward. Exactly, exactly. So uh, there's always, that's obviously not a blanket statement. But it, for the most part, it covers pretty much everything that we do in an indoor cycling class, with a, with a few very extreme exceptions. <laughs> Right. Now, give me a few examples from a personal trainer's perspective. Okay. 
Well, these are um, these are sort of I'm going to say they're silly examples, but they kind of make the point. And um, I'll go with the example you use in your book with the uh, the guy in the gym doing the bicep curls with the really heavy dumbbells. Mm-hmm. When we see him lifting the dumbbells, he's sort of throwing them up there. He's he's arching his back. You know, we all know that from a technique standpoint that, that that's not real good. He's cheating. He's using other muscles, um, so on and so forth. He's using momentum. Um, and he's potentially risking injury by arching his back too much, et cetera. But we don't really know what his goals are. And if we look at the whole functional movement training in that specific training, we're trying to create momentum. If that same guy, instead of trying to get bigger biceps as a farmer and his job is to lift, you know, hay bales up onto a flatbed, is he going to stand there, not use any momentum, lift slowly, do a perfectly executed bicep curl and then set the hay bale down on the, on the tractor? No, he's going to do a functional movement. Exactly. Like I love that. I love that. Like a power clean. Yep. He's going to you know, create momentum. He's going to actually, in essence, almost make it safer because he's spreading the load through multiple joints versus isolating it to a single joint. Um, so that's just, the, like I said, we all know that's not what that guy is doing. <laughs> Probably it's not. Just, it's a way to look at something, look at an exercise, a technique, whatever that may be. Uh, the other example is, is you know, the teaching of a, of a properly executed lunge. And when you're doing a lunge... Uh, you want to make sure as you're going down into your lunge that your knee doesn't go in front of your toes because if you're going in front of your toes, you're getting a lot of shearing forces in the knee, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, you're not bending as much as the hip, and it can it's potentially risky. Um, well, if you look at somebody who's a rower who is in crew, if they're rowing, when they come in to an ergometer and they're coming in what's called the catch phase, when they go up into kind of a rope into a little ball, their knees are way over their toes just at the point they start to execute force and power for the pull phase of the stroke. So, you know, is rowing wrong? Well, I, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I mean, it's specific to the sport. And... Exactly. And we can, you know, it can certainly be debated about how much risk is in there, but that knee position is definitely present. So it's something you have to consider. And, you know, what are the risks? What are the rewards to that? Exactly. And I would think for many sports, Especially if you get into professional sports, you know, you think of a pitcher and how much risk there is for a lot of the work they're doing. That risk is yep. very important and worthwhile to them. Yep. I 100% agree. I have another saying and that uh, no one ever says competitive sports are healthy. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> well, health- hopefully, hopefully we're not competing as much in an indoor cycling application, no. but let's, let's go ahead and analyze some of these movements. Okay. And- you sent me a list, and we're going to just discuss some of the risks and rewards for each one of these. And the first one we were talking about is a standing position. So why don't you go ahead and uh, begin okay. with that one? Uh, well, some of the rewards of standing position are probably the number one reward in terms of um, effectiveness is that it provides the potential to increase our power. When you come out of the saddle, you have your body weight to help assist you in terms of, of pushing the pedals down. So that's obviously a big advantage. And another advantage or reward, and especially in indoor cycling, is it does provide you with a saddle brake. And that reward alone is stronger than I think most people think, because riding an indoor bike stationary is even seated for a long time isn't real comfortable. Uh, and that like, reward is probably more important for our newer students or our non-cycling students. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as well as overweight people, people that, you know, can't generate a lot of power in the first place, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, another advantage of standing is the changing of joint angles and muscle usage. You're using basically the same muscles, but in slightly different ways. So you're letting certain muscles take a little bit of a break or certain fibers and other ones that maybe haven't been doing as much when they were seated. Now they get to come and play when you're when you're standing. And then obviously when you're coming out of the saddle, you're bringing in other 
other muscle groups, uh, you're bringing in core, you're bringing in upper body, and you're bringing in balance. And all that stuff is being integrated together in addition to what you were doing when you were seated. So again, you're bringing in a chance to possibly burn more calories, uh, work on skill development, et cetera. And what would the risks be? Well, the main risk, and this is something that's easier to see than to talk about, but is when you stand, even when you're doing it correctly or with good form, when you come out of the saddle, your center of mass or your center of gravity comes forward slightly. Okay, and in that position, especially near the top of the pedal stroke at 12 o'clock, one o'clock, um, your knee is actually starting now to be out in front of your toes, a small amount. So here again, we're in a situation where we're in a, an increased shearing force position. If you, you can look at this yourself, if you have a mirror and you get on your bike and just bring yourself to that top position and put yourself in the right standing position, you'll see your knees are in front of your toes. And then as you go through the pedal stroke, your knee will start to draw back. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the amount of force up there isn't as high as it is once your knee's in a safer position, but it's still present. So there is some, you know, fairly could be small, could be higher inherent risk there of, of shearing forces. And quick, quick uh, definition of shearing forces. Basically, it's the more your knee bends, the more the your upper thigh bone, your, your femur basically wants to slide off your lower leg bone. It wants to push forward, it pushes in the kneecap, it puts, te- you know, tension on the tendons. Um, so the more it bends, the more shearing force there is, which is why doing, you know, super deep squats is higher risk versus, you know, half squats. Um, and the more your hips try to move forward and your foot, you know, stays in one place, the more that knee pushes out forward and those forces increase as well. So we got that shearing force potential there. Is there a difference if it's, if you're standing up on a flat road versus a hill? I would say it's greater for a flat road, for sure. I agree. The hill just naturally is going to kind of set your weight back a little bit. So there's going to be less weight going into that knee bending position, for sure. Yep. And especially if they're on a flat road with improper resistance, which yep. obviously is one of the risks. Yep. That's that's one of the next risks. Uh, improper resistance, you know, a lot of problems with that. Um, and this is very, very common with what instructors are calling a standing flat. You know, they have students riding with flat-like resistance, and then they just have them stand up. Well, we already know one of the rewards of standing is that we get that extra power from our body weight. So if we don't change the resistance, we're basically our body weight's just going to shoot right through that resistance. There's not going to be anything there to stand on. And that puts our, our knee, again, in a very um, interesting position, not at the top of the stroke this time, but at the bottom. Right. Uh, so you're already flowing through very little resistance. So the, the actual muscles surrounding your knee are actually doing a whole lot at that point. So that makes your knee slightly less stable. And then right when you hit the bottom of the pedal stroke, all your weight and all that force gets compacted right in that one spot. And now those muscles have to react and contract very quickly to stabilize the knee. And at the same time, it's kind of the same effect of something pulling the rug out from underneath you. Right. So you have all that weight coming down, you hit the bottom of the stroke, and right when you hit the bottom, the pedal comes out from under you. So that's another reason it sets a lot of instability in a very small area. Um, and this whole thing can be very accentuated just by individual body weight differences. Obviously, somebody who's heavier is going to come from a, get into a standing position. They have a lot more weight, so they're going to need a lot more resistance in to order support to, to support that. Someone who's lighter might need less. One of the advantages that we talked about, the increase in power, the potential to increase power. If we don't have enough resistance, we don't have a platform to stand on, we'll actually see our power drop. And I experienced this firsthand with numbers since we now have the Kaiser bikes with power. I did a little a little power workshop with small groups. 
And so what I did is I had the students basically go into a climbing seated resistance, you know, just piling around. Didn't really give them a lot of a lot of cues or anything. And then I said, okay, take note of where your power is right now. And then so they did that. And then I said, okay, stand up. And everybody stood up. Nobody touched the resistance. And I said, what happened to your power? Every single person's power went down. See, I love that. It validates what I've been saying for so long. You know, if you're, yep. if you're standing up with just spinning the legs, you just lose that power. Yeah. So, yeah. And their heart rate might be going up. So they think they're doing something. Exactly. And that's, you know, not to get off topic, but with this whole power meter revolution thing that hopefully will be coming, um, that's going to clean up a lot of this right off the bat because it's going to give them that feedback. It's not something they feel. It's something they're going to see. What we call indoor cycling 2.0. Yes, exactly. See, we're right on the cutting edge of all this, Jennifer. Yes. Surprise, yes, surprise. Yeah. All right. What are some suggestions? Well, as far as suggestions, and again, anything that I'm saying today, I'm not saying right or wrong. They're my personal suggestions. And, you know, as instructors can, can take the information and make the assessment for themselves and decide what to do with it. I limit standing climbs to a minute or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me, that's regardless of whether we're doing a standing flat or, or a, a standing climb. It's, it's a minute or less, and more typically, it's actually 30 seconds. Um, and that's it. Get them back down. It's not saying they're going to then if they could be down for anywhere for 30 seconds or five minutes. But I really minimize the time just because of the vast number of people that we have in the class. Yes, absolutely, there are people in there that could safely stand for three minutes straight. No problem. But there are other people that absolutely could not, you know, going a minute or more is going to be way too much. So for me, I err on the side of caution. That's a good point. What I might add to that is know your population. Yes. You know, especially if you're subbing a class or new to a, you, you have a new class, get to know your population and then coach accordingly. I mean, I do sometimes stand for longer than a minute in a standing climb, but I'm like you. I very rarely spend longer than about 30 seconds out of the saddle in a standing flat for that very same reason, for or for the reasons we just talked about. Yeah, when I'm teaching a standing position, always, 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 I and I don't say it every single time. I say it definitely, you know, more towards the beginning of class um, after we've warmed up. And is that before you stand, most of you are going to need to add resistance to compensate for your body weight. That's the very first thing I'm going to say. So that you know, no matter where we're at, what level we're at, what kind of climb we're at you're more than likely going to need to add a little bit. And from that point on, that's when you can get into your proper cueing. You know, you should have enough resistance when you stand that you have a platform to stand on. You should be catching the pedal at the top of the pedal stroke. You should feel it support you. Um, if you feel like you're falling over your pedals, if you have a lot of hand pressure because you're putting all your weight into your hands to stabilize, you know, you need more resistance. You know, Jennifer, your cue of feeling the saddle touching the back of your legs puts you in the right position front to back. Right. Um, but that increase in resistance right right before you stand is, is pretty important and something that, you know, is rarely taught. I actually used that this morning in my class. Uh, I did a long climb, but we had uh, occasional surges. And I even told him at the beginning, I said, no matter what, if I just say get up or stand up, if I fail to say add resistance, you guys better remember to do that. So sometimes I'll, I usually cue it as we stand, but if I don't, I want them to know always to do it. Right. And yeah, I, I wouldn't suggest, you know, queuing it every single time. That's going to get, you know, kind of annoying after a while. But you've mentioned it a few times. So that's it. Yeah. People should re remember that and see it. Hopefully. So standing positions, uh, I would say that uh, people should just kind of know their population. And if you tend to have 
more cyclists, you probably don't need to stand as much. And if you have fewer cyclists and more newbies, then you're probably going to stand a little more often than, you know, say Doug or I might. But, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just keep these things in mind as you plan how much you're going to stand up. All right, the next thing we wanted to talk about, and I actually like this discussion a lot because not a lot of people do this, but how long should your warm-up be? Uh, yes, this is another one of my, my pet peeves when I take other people other people's classes. You know, obviously, rewards of a long one are pretty straightforward. I think almost everybody gets taught these initially in their certifications. Um, the main reason for the warm-up is that we're getting all our systems fully operational, and that's going to give us our maximum benefit for the class. Um, it's going to reduce microtrauma to, to muscles and tendons, and it's going to lubricate joints. And I, this was a while ago. I remember reading some study that said the the synovial fluid at the knee, which is going to lubricate that session, takes a minimum of 15 minutes of wow, wow. easy pedaling to be fully ready to go. Well, that makes sense to me because my knees don't feel like <laughs> going very hard when I'm riding. At least 15 to 20 minutes into it. Right. So I mean, that's that's pretty significant. That's, that was just just for that part of it. So you know. Now, as far as risk, obviously, there's no real inherent risk to warming up, but I call it a social risk for the most part of doing a long warm-up. It's, you know, it's time-consuming. Let's face yeah. it, like teaching a 40-minute class or 45 or even an hour, you, you know, you just blew 25, 30% of that class. You know, I can certainly appreciate why you kind of, you know, may want to spend that much time. Um, you know, you get in those classes sometimes and the, you can feel the energy. People are fired up. You know, it's after work. They're ready to just, you know, go out there and really let off some steam. And as an instructor, you might start to get a little nervous that, man, if I spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes warming up, you know, they're going to get bored and, you know, they're, they just want to get going. And then as far as a, an actual risk of doing a, a really short warm up, obviously, it's, it's going to decrease our workout effectiveness because our systems aren't fully operational. We're kind of body's kind of playing catch up the entire time. So as instructors, if they need something to sell a longer warm up, this is a, say, hey, look, you know, it's, if you just be patient and get through this warm up, you're actually going to, you know, do a better job work harder, burn more calories uh, when you're fully warmed up. Great. Um, and as far as recommendations, you know, what I would suggest is, you know, an 8 to 15 minute warm up, but make it a progressive warm up. You know, I think spinning easy for 15 straight minutes is, isn't going to be too popular regardless of how we sell it. So no. I, I can appreciate that. So, you know, you start, you start flat seated. I mean, God, so many classes, you know, even when I was training for a certification, Okay, let's warm up. Everybody, out of the saddle. Yeah. Are, Two are, minutes into it, they're out of the saddle. Are, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> so, you know, start flat, start with low resistance, you know, then maybe go into a little bit of fast pedal type drills at low resistance, seated, then maybe move into a moderate climb, seated, you know, and then go to a standing climb, you know, and, and each, each, each one of those steps, effort comes up a little bit, they start breaking a sweat, you know, the breathing starts picking up and it, and it builds them in. Early in class, your students are, are, their attention span is on you. It's high. So this is the best time to teach rather than to motivate. You know, even if they're fired up, it's really easy to fall in that trap. All right, you know, let's go. And, you know, you got their attention. So use that time, you know, really wisely and, you know, really talk about technique and form and, you know, doing a good warm up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, teach rather than motivate. Mm -hmm. I like that. And you'll see in uh, most of our audio profiles. So we just spend that first 10 minutes. It's when we're educating them and yep. explaining what we're doing. Exactly. And that actually brings me to the next point is that this is a great time and you obviously have to be prepared ahead of time is to preview what you're going to do. 
tell them what the profile is, what their goals are, what their hardest effort might be today, what their, you know, what their game plan is. Once again, you, you have their attention. And if let's say that, you know, the warm up isn't super exciting, well, now you're giving them something to focus on. And then lastly, you know, you, you, everyone loves that power start that, you know, okay, let's, let's, let's get on it right now. So, you know, create that anticipation through the warm up. Give them something to look forward to. You know, we're going to do a 15-minute warm-up. We're going to, you know, progress very slowly so they're really ready to go. And I have a great, great start, you know, a great song to where we're really going to finally let go. You know, now I feel like a pro athlete. Now I'm getting ready for, you know, a race or something or something like that. And by that time, they're going to f- forget that they've been warming up for the last 12 exactly. minutes. That 15 minutes is, is gone and that mm-hmm. went by really fast. Great recommendations. All right, now let's talk about cadence. All right. High well, cadence. High cadence, yes. Now, the rewards of high cadence, remember, we're, we're sticking in the guidelines here of, you know, 80 to 110, 80 to, uh, to 120 for a high cadence type of situation. So you want to make sure that's uh, that's very clear. Obviously, working at high cadence, we're increasing neuromuscular efficiency. We're getting better. We're learning how to pedal faster. Um, within reason, we're decreasing the overall forces in the knee. So instead of pedaling a certain power at a very high resistance, a low cadence, we can pedal the exact same power, same effort with lower resistance, higher cadence. So the peak forces at the knee are less, and that's going to put us at less risk. So that's and always this is a this is a big goal of outdoor cyclists, and this is why, you know, everyone talks about Lance Armstrong's faster cadence. Well, there's a lot less forces in the knee, and there's a lot more efficiency going on. Yep, absolutely. And with eventually, with training, just like with the Lance example you just gave, you're also going to now develop the ability to, to produce high-power outputs with moderate resistances. So we can still go to that high intensity, that high end, without using those huge forces. We can instead go with moderate forces and higher cadences. And that is something it's definitely you need to train for. It's not something you can just do. And uh, lastly, and this will be the, the biggest reason I think most people like pedaling fast, it's that, it's that sensory of fast. It's fun. It feels good. It, it feels like you're doing something. You know, you're on that stationary bike going nowhere. And when you pedal fast, and especially when you got that fixed gear to help you, um, you know, it just it, it feels motivating. It's fun. Exactly. Um, obviously, when we go to wrists now, um, if we're not pedaling with a lot of resistance, but we're doing, you know, higher cadence, we have obviously less power output and less effectiveness. Um, now, that might be a goal for practicing fast pedaling, but if, if we're trying to do something at a, at a high intensity level and that's what we're prescribing and you see people pedaling at, you know, 140 RPMs, once again, if you get that beautiful tool of the power meter, it's going to say you're not really doing anything right now. Would that everyone could have a power meter to prove to them they're not doing much? Yes. Wouldn't that be great? Someday it'll be a dream come true. Exactly. But for right now, it's going to have to come from the instructors. <laughs> exactly. The instructor. And as, as I like to say a lot, the instructor pretending you have a power meter. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Explaining the concept of power, the, you know, the, what goes behind it, forces and speed, not just speed, uh, so on and so forth. That's all great things to, uh, to talk about with your class. Um, obviously risk of going very fast, especially with our fixed gear bikes with the heavy flywheel flywheels is just unsafe motor control. We simply can't move our legs fast enough. And that flywheel is bringing around much faster than we control. We can control. And, and if I can just add to that, you know, you and I, we all know people who can actually pedal faster than someone else. So if you've got an instructor up there who is skilled 
and who can pedal fast, so everyone tries to follow, but they don't have the skills, that's where that motor control comes in. They're trying to mimic or mirror what the instructor's doing, and they're not being successful. Yes. And I guess that would be a good time also as, as another way to go to say that, you know, everyone has a, a self-selected cadence that they prefer. Mm-hmm. For a training effect, you need to go a little outside of that self-selected cadence, so a little faster or a little slower. But going way outside of it is going to be ineffective overall for yourself and unsafe because you won't be able to control it. With that as well, you have you can also have an opportunity for that increased uh, shearing force of the knee. I like to call it knee jamming. When that foot comes up from the back from the recovery stroke and it's coming up much faster, it gets it gets snapped right at the top. That knee gets gets really quickly jammed, and then you get that that's that spot where that knee is is fairly forward or near the front of the toes. So that's a risk. And then obviously, you know, slipping a pedal, something like that is a, yeah, a yeah. huge, huge risk. <laughs> um, and then one is a comfort, not really a risk, but um, increased saddle pressure. Bouncing. Yeah. Well, not only the bouncing, but even if, even with good form, with very, very light, light, light resistance, you're actually putting more of your weight on the saddle. Oh yeah. Cause you have to sit deep into the saddle. Yeah. All your weight is not, when you're, Pushing the pedals with an appropriate resistance or something that where you're getting pedal feedback, like we talked about, you're actually, you're, you're not going to notice it or you shouldn't notice it. You're actually taking some of your weight away from your body. Does that make sense? So oh, it does completely. I've always told people that, that, you know, part of their saddle sensitivity is coming from the fact that they're not pushing down on anything. Exactly. That means all, literally all their weight is just, just draping over the saddle. It's like you were like, straddling it and sitting down without your feet in the pedals exactly that's a great that's a great way to put that actually i like that that's not comfortable (laughs) (laughs) so what are your suggestions recommendations again the cueing is critical um, especially if you're going to do fast pedal drills with appropriate but low resistance um, in terms of building that neuromuscular efficiency you know cues like you know be connected to the pedals have pedal feedback Um, what does the pressure feel like on your saddle does it feel even um, you know, this all the circle cues. Um, I think a lot of people always use the, you know, the no bounce uh, cue, which is obviously a good one. You know, if you're, if you're bouncing in the saddle, add resistance. One thing I never hear anybody say is slow down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they never tell anybody if you're bouncing, slow down. That's another, you know, they can't pedal that fast. So just slow down a little bit. Yeah. You know, that can solve the, the problem right there. Well, you haven't taken a class with me because I say that a lot, but, uh, <laughs> but you're right. It's not very common. Right. Um, I also use things like, you know, right now, if we're doing a a lower resistance practice fast pedal, you know, this is a a mental task, not a physical one. I don't want a lot of effort. I I want you to think about it and, you know, and, or I say, I want a low effort, high skill. How about those instructors who tell everyone not to bounce in the saddle, but they're bouncing in the saddle themselves? (laughs) Yep. We definitely see that a lot. And what I would tell instructors is, you know, just check yourself. You know, if you got if you got mirrors around you and check yourself when you're teaching. And I, I can understand the instructors are obviously trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, to cue the right stuff. You know, they're up on a platform they got, you know, high energy music. They're amped up and they're a little excited so that sometimes their form, you know, goes out the window a little bit. So, you know, check yourself when you're teaching. Just take a look, quick look in that mirror, see what you're doing to make sure you're sending the right message, you know, non-verbally or a huge thing. It's very humbling, but video yourself. While yeah, you're that would be great. That is a it's a it's it's tough to watch yourself on camera, but um, it, it'll be remarkable what you can see and then and then fix. So I'll just add one thing to your suggestions here, and that is, you know, spinning has the recommended ranges from 
60 to 110. I know that some of the other certifications allow you to go a little faster, maybe a little slower, which, which I think is okay because there are instances where you might do drills that are greater than 110 or you might climb a hill a little slower than 60. But my recommendation is these are the exceptions. You know, always know, again, it comes down to who your students are and how you're coaching them to do it properly. So stay within the recommendations, knowing that if you're going to go outside them, they are just for the exceptions. So which one should we uh, pick next? Well, just so everybody listening knows, Doug's got a whole bunch of things to talk about here. But I think what we'll do is we'll do one more and then, Doug, would you be willing to come back sometime in the future? We can go through the rest of them. Absolutely. All right. Well, that sounds great because we do have a long list in front of us still. All right. Well, I'd like to talk about the jumps and lifts, if that's okay. Uh, jumps and lifts and uh, a lot of different terminologies for this stuff. So I'm basically, when I'm referring to jumps or lifts, it's anytime you're coming out of the saddle for a relatively short duration and then coming back to the saddle. Um, rewards there, obviously, once again, we're looking at it's, it's a saddle break, and that's, that's a good thing. Coming out of the saddle because of the increase in core control, et cetera, we're working on our cadence control development. Uh, we're bringing that core in, and you know, let's face it, it it's fun. You know, I've it heard is. I've heard people talk about, you know, they're dancing, they're doing aerobics on the bike, and they're dancing on the bike. I don't fault people for doing that. People like dancing, and you know, as an instructor, what your ultimate goal is is to get people to come back. But what you have to, you know, decide is how much risk are you putting into that fun stuff that you're doing. Right. Um, and then also in terms of the, especially the shorter range jumps for for a few seconds or more, um, it's. It is something you do on a real bike. It's called mountain biking. Um, yeah. You're doing lots and lots of those things, over, especially over um, courses that are technical, with lots of rocks and roots, et cetera. So it, it is a real thing that you do. Obviously, risks going along there, if we're doing a lot of them because of that core integration, potentially, especially with lower back stuff and spine instability, you know, that is putting a lot of people at risk. You know, as those muscles fatigue and the next thing you know, their spine starts shifting around, that could be creating a lot of problems in that area. Doing jumps on the flat road. Here again, this is similar to doing standing, you know, standing flats. If you're not changing the resistance, you have no platform to stand on. There's nothing there. And that's going to give you, in a sense, a false perceived effort. You know, when you do them, you're, you know, your breathing picks up, your heart rate picks up. Well, that's basically because your body's trying to keep itself from falling over. Right. It's trying to stabilize itself. You're putting more pressure into your hands. You're moving forward on the handlebars. And then we get right back into more shearing forces on the knee. Um, so on and so forth. Um, your power output, once again, will drop. It will go down because you didn't adjust the resistance. More than likely, your cadence will drop when you come out of the saddle just for simply the fact that you're trying to catch yourself from basically falling over. The word, the word I actually just started now to teach um, the more traditional jumps where you've, with the increasing cadence with resistance. I stopped using jumps because so many instructors say jump and people come flying out of the saddle. It's a, it's a very strong word. <laughs> it, it is. And then they slam back down in the saddle. So I use lifts. I find that a softer word. You know, you, you come out of the saddle, soft stop at the top, you smoothly sit back down. You know, it's a much more controlled um, cue, in my opinion. And all that stuff with without enough resistance and doing it very quickly is going to result in an inconsistent pedal stroke. And your technique is going to get kind of messy. Um, if you're doing jumps on a hill, you got to be. That's a, actually a good place to do it, but you want to make sure you're not going overboard with the resistance. And the fact that you know people are going to start yanking on the handlebars, they're going to you know really put a lot more upper body work into it than than what they should. 
And your recommendations? Uh, recommendations for jumps. Um, if you're going to do jumps on a flat, do essentially a short standing climb. So basically shift up, enough resistance so you have a platform, stay up for 10, 15 seconds, come back down, downshift back to the flat. No matter what, you should be shifting up when you stand up like we discussed earlier. Yeah, exactly. So a bigger gear is really nothing more than kind of like being on a hill. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It is, it is a hill. It's a 10 or 15 second hill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just if you're riding outside, it's the same thing. If you're on a flat road and you'd want to stand up, say, just for a saddle break, you shift up. You create more resistance, essentially creating a hill, just like we create a hill inside. So it's exactly the same thing. Um, and then this is my modification um, to mimic mountain biking. And this would be the modification to the famous popcorn jumps. Um, so in mountain biking, you know, if you're riding on technical terrain, going over roots and rocks, there are going to be times when you're going to be coming in and out of the saddle and not staying there for very long. You know, one, two, three seconds down, one, two, three seconds up, so on and so forth. But with mountain biking, your cadences are lower. You're going to be probably pushing a little bit bigger gear for, for control and for traction. So in a class, what I would do is I would put people at a fairly high flat resistance. I would have them, you know, stay at a normal cruising type of a cadence. And then I turn it into a reaction drill. So I would cue lift, and I'd have them come out of the saddle, two or three seconds, sit right back down. And then I leave it for five, 10, 15 seconds. And then I might cue lift again. They do the same thing. Then I might only wait four seconds, cue it again. Do it for one song, not a lot. They kind of get that popcorn effect without doing it. Without the dangers of the uh... second. Every time they come down, they get at least, you know, two, three, four seconds or more to reset fix their technique if it got a little sloppy, and then focus on what they're doing. If you're just going up and down every second, it just becomes a mundane task. You're not really right. thinking about it. You're just repeating it over and over and over again. Uh, so that would be my modification to, to give them that popcorn effect without actually giving them popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last one is the traditional, you know, uh, keep it real cycling jumps, if you, especially on a hill, is when you're climbing a fairly heavy seated resistance climb in that 60 rpm range and in that situation most people will be able to come out of the saddle without switching resistance and stand on a platform and increase to the upper end of that climbing cadence range say to like 70 or 80. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a great way to start teaching jumps just because they have that platform to safely stand on. And then you could maybe take that to a flat road and do the real cycling jump. I mean cyclists don't do sequence of jumps they do a jump exactly to yep. break away or to attack and it's it's almost like the start of a sprint without the you know all outness of a sprint is that yep. a word all outness sure um but you've got that you know breaking against uh resistance like you said almost like having a hill but just a big gear surge those legs in a faster cadence and then sit back down those are the kind of jumps i lot like yeah yep. very effective and if you did have a power meter You'll see that it just that that needle goes way off to the right. Big power surge. You know, I really like that. I like this way of analyzing these movements and letting instructors kind of, you know, let that light bulb go off and decide for themselves. Okay, this is my population. These are the risks. These are the rewards. Are any of these risks worth it to me? Well, maybe not. But I know what the students are looking for, such as those rewards. So now you might look at your class a little different. Again, maybe if you don't have cyclists, you stand up more often. 
change your, your position more frequent, frequently, but still not, you know, go into some of those more potentially dangerous things. What do you think, John? I think this was really good. I liked it. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Doug, if somebody has any specific questions, are, is, are you available to be contacted? Uh, sure. How would they get a hold of you? Uh, you can just send me an email, d-r-u-s-h-o at rochester.rr.com. A note to our ICI Pro members, Doug actually has another five techniques that he's going to dissect uh, from the personal training perspective that we're going to be offering exclusively to ICI Pro members. Till next time, Jennifer, thank you. Doug, thank you. Uh, this has been really good. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, Doug. Thank you.